0: From 1 Samuel 24-46, through Saul's Rash Vow And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies So none of the people had tasted food Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that, that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sitting against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here. And eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give your... But if this guilt is in your people of Israel, give to Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here am I. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. God bless the reading of this book.
1: Now I, (laughs) I planned... To cover all of the verses that we just read together this morning, of course, I will not be able to do that because, as I studied this week, I saw nope i can 't do it in uh, in the time allotted to us on Sunday morning. now, if you wanted an hour uh, sermon that was two hours long, I could do it, but we will cover only um, through verse thirty six this morning i I have often been troubled uh, in my Christian life uh, that there are so many people who claim to be Christians but live in a way that is unchristianly, unchristlike. Um, I have been troubled that there are so many, particularly in younger generations, so many people who claim to be Christians but feel it unnecessary to be actively involved with the body of Christ. It seems like if we love Jesus, then we are plugged into the body of Christ. That if we love Jesus, then we love what Jesus loves and He loves His bride. It just, it just seems like common sense to me. Yeah, there are so many people who claim to be Christians who aren't involved in the body at all and feel that that's okay and aren't convicted to participate with the body of Christ, with the church of of Christ. I find that troubling. I find find it troubling that there are so many people who teach God's Word who live in a way that is not Christ-like as well. Or people who are so convinced that what they are teaching, what they are preaching is is true, yet are constantly misinterpreting and misrepresenting the Scriptures that that God has given for, for our good. This sermon, of course, it's one sermon stretched over two weeks now is what it's going to be. And and we'll see if I'm able to keep it down to two weeks the next time that we meet together. But these are the questions that the text presented to us today. They help us to answer that because Saul is this type of person, right? Changed by God, chosen by God at the beginning for service in God's kingdom. Saul is this type of person, this type of king who was moved by the Holy Spirit previously to genuine true worship, it seems like in the scripture, and then changed into a different person by the Holy Spirit and moved to war that honored God and celebration that honored God, and he led the nation of Israel to unity under his reign by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now what we are seeing in Saul's life is just a degradation of life. A vicious cycle of sin taking him over. And it seems like no matter what he does, he cannot please God, or see God, or lead the people to honor God now, and so this is the picture of apostasy in, in the modern day church, the picture of someone who claims to be a Christian, who seems to have a genuine salvation experience, and then falls away from the faith, and falls away from the church, it's, we see all of this in, in Saul. Today we're going to look at verses 24 through 36, and then two weeks from now we'll, we'll cover verses 37 through 46, and next week, the reason we're not covering that next week is because we have a special sermon planned in John chapter 15 as we evaluate where we've been this year as a local church together, uh, gauge our own health, see where we need to go from here. And So that will be next Sunday, and, and it will be sort of surrounded by this part of the the story in God's Bible. In verses twenty-four through thirty, we will see that Saul orders the people, the kingdom of Israel to fast. And in verses thirty-one through thirty-six, we will see that Saul orders the, the nation, this kingdom of Israel, the people here to to make sacrifices to atone for the sin that they commit in verses twenty-four through thirty. We'll start in verse 24 here. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. They were under a difficult circumstance. They were oppressed by something that was going on. They were hard-pressed on that day for or because Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Here is the picture we get in verse verse twenty-four. The Philistines are coming against the nation of Israel. They have been in the land for a while. Jonathan, remember, has defeated a garrison of Philistines, and then another group of Philistines. He went in secret like a ninja and defeated another group of twenty Philistines. The Philistines are in, in disarray. And now we read that Saul has commanded the people because he is being oppressed, because he feels oppressed, because he wants to win this war. He has instructed the people of Israel to fast. Now, I don't know what your tactic is in war if you have ever been in war, but usually as a commanding officer or as a king, you're not going to instruct your people to fast in the midst of a war. Why? Because it's going to make them weak. And this is exactly the thing that we see here in this text. Saul, because he is trying to Get God to move a certain way. Instructs the whole nation to fast on Wednesday nights. We're walking through Matthew's Gospel, and uh, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter six, verses sixteen through eighteen, we actually see Jesus give some instruction regarding regarding fasting. And Jesus says, do not fast like the hypocrites. Can you, can you guess the reason that hypocrites would fast? It would be similar to Saul's reason here for instructing the people to, to fast. Instead, throughout the Scriptures, we see two reasons why people would fast. Fasting was not a regular religious practice. It wasn't like you have to fast during this time, during these months, during these days. It just wasn't a regular religious practice until we see the Pharisees doing this in Matthew chapter 9. And Matthew describes the Pharisees of having this regular type of religious practice. The two reasons that people had for fasting were, one, as a time of seeking the Lord's will. It was times of preparation. Jesus did this before starting his public preaching ministry. He fasted and, and prepared himself, seeking the will of the Father. Of course, we know Jesus being perfect and himself being God was always seeking the will of the Father. In fact, he is the person of the Godhead who reveals the will of the Father. So he's, he's setting this example for us as he prepares for his, his worldly ministry to seek the Lord's will. We also see fasting introduced in the Old Testament and into the New Testament as, as a means of mourning or repenting before, before God. And so fasting accomplished two purposes. The first purpose was preparation, and fasting was accompanied with prayer, deep introspection, evaluation of self and of what's going on and of the kingdom. And the mourning of a lost loved one, or why has God brought the nation into exile? So fasting will be practiced as, as a means of mourning or repenting, and people would fast as they repent before God, to, as a picture of their of their of their depravity. Right? In fact, I am entirely depraved of all good things, and I have sinned. I have rebelled against God, and so as a means of repentance, I am. I am fasting, depriving myself of this necessity and mourning over my own sin and seeking forgiveness from God. We see fasting used in these ways in the Old Testament. If you have your your pens ready, those of you who take notes, in Exodus chapter 34 verse 28, in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 9, in Ezra chapter 8 verse 21, and first Samuel chapter 1 verse 12 and Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 And Zechariah chapter 7 verses 3 through 5. And Zechariah chapter 8 verse 19. When we get to the prophet Isaiah chapter 58 verses 3 through 6 Isaiah is warning the people against improper fasting. Fasting that was meant to move God to certain action. If I fast and if I pray I can change the way that God is moving. I can change God's mind. I can get God to do something for me. And Isaiah Chapter 53 explicitly warns the nation of Israel not to fast for this reason. Yet, this is the reason Saul is instructing the nation to fast. And so, we continue to see Saul's sin compounding here. Verse 25 All the people of the land entered into the forest. When people are fasting, remember this they entered into the forest, and there was honey on. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth. They, they're keeping Saul's instruction. The king has ordered us to fast. We are fasting. We are not tasting this honey. For the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore he put the end of his staff that was in his hand and and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. The sustenance filled him. He felt stronger, more joyful. He could see better. His eyes brightened. He became lively. Verse 28, Then one of the people said, your, your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, and Jonathan recognizes this, right? My father has troubled the land. This is a sinful way to think about fasting. Jonathan recognizes this in the text for today. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more? If only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found for now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Jonathan recognizes what's going on here, right? Saul in his fear and in his sin and in his unrighteousness as he is becoming this ravenous wolf that Samuel predicted he would be by the word of the of the Lord. Has, because he desires to have victory in war, challenged the people, instructed the people, commanded the people who are under him to fast. Something that seems to be very religious, very pious, something that maybe we should do if we want to earn God's approval according to a worldly standard or maybe according to a worldly way of doing things. And the people are obeying him. What Saul is actually doing is troubling the land according to Jonathan, his son. He is troubling the land. He is not only growing in his own sin, but he is pulling the people of Israel with him into sin. And Jonathan recognizes that if the people were to just eat, if this, if this unnecessary burden was not placed on the people, they would have actually been better soldiers and they would have won a greater victory here. The slaughter of the Philistines would have been greater and Jonathan recognizes this. Brothers and sisters, I want to make some quick application before we move on to the next section here. How often do well-meaning religious people place on others unnecessary burdens? Burdens that we don't see in the text of Scripture, creating rules that we don't see in the, in the Bible Making the Bible out to say things that it doesn't say, just placing unnecessary burdens on on people in this text, we see Saul doing this, and Saul, I think, is sincerely. Trying to please God, to do what God wants, and we're going to see this play out as we we continue to read through the text. Saul, in his own power, by his own muster, is is, he's trying to do the godly thing, the right thing, what we would call today the Christian thing, and he's just he's unable to. His sin is compounding, and he is hurting the people who are under him. And so many religious people today, not just in the organized. Church, right in America, but I think in every religion, who are under every possible worldview here present today in our age, I think I think we I think we do this. I think it's natural to the human heart. We are trying so desperately to do the correct thing, according to whatever worldview we hold, and we end up just hurting more than we help. We end up hurting people and people feel oppressed when the reality is with less burden we strive or we thrive. And the church isn't here to overburden people, right? And I think we know this in this room. I've mentioned it before, right? The church isn't here to just place burdens on people. The church is here for the revitalization of the body of Christ, of the Community of the the cities and rural areas around us here as a local church, the revitalization of our state and our country and our world. That's, that's why we're here in the world, salt of the earth, light of the world. We're here for revitalization, not to overburden people with with the things we think people ought to be burdened with, or even with the things maybe we think in our humanity are the right religious, pious things to to do well, Saul here represents the the unhealthy way of doing religion or of leading people it's not about burdens it's about revitalization in verses 31 through 36 we we see Saul try to try to correct the sin of the people look look with me in verse 31 here they struck among the Philistines that day from Micmash to Ajalon, and the people were very weary. They are still, they are still very tired, and they are tired because of this unnecessary burden, the Saul's sin. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. So we get this picture, right? Saul has, in a way that does not honor God, in a way that dishonors God, encourages the people to do something that seems religious or pious, placing this burden upon the people. And and during war, they are fighting, they they are being active, they are fighting off the Philistines, which is part of God's plan. Thank the Lord that he is faithful to his own promises despite our sin. Amen. Where the people now are getting, they're getting hungrier and hungrier. They're getting desperate, and they see the they see the animals of the Philistines, and they go and they slaughter these animals out of desperation, and don't take the time to drain the the blood. Don't take the time to cook the animals. They just they slaughter the animals and they're eating the raw meat from the carcasses of the animals because of desperation. I'm not sure this is what Saul was going for when he gave his command to fast. But this is, but this is what has happened. And this in itself is an atrocious thing before God. And in fact, we see it over and over again and in the Old Testament law. Starting in Genesis chapter 9 and and going all the way through Deuteronomy, we see it a few times. Do not eat a strangled animal or an animal with the blood still in it. It's just explicitly commanded by God in His law. And so Saul's command to fast, do this outwardly religious thing, not necessarily from the heart in a way that doesn't honor God, has now drawn the people into this, this atrocious thing before God, into this into the sin before God, explicit sin and explicit disobedience to the law of, of God. I wonder why. See, my mind asks questions like this. Does, Does your mind ask questions like this? Why would God command people not to eat meat with the blood still in it? Like, why? And we've heard several things about this, haven't we? We've heard it was for health reasons. God didn't want His people to get sick. That's probably the one that we hear most often, though the Bible doesn't explicitly say that anywhere. Uh, we can say that, yes, it is healthier to drain the blood and to cook the meat. Absolutely. But that's not the reason that God gives in His Bible. We might have heard, or some might have heard, that God really desires His people to be humane with the way that they treat animals. So he wants to make sure that the animal is dead before it is consumed. So so maybe you've heard that, but again that's that's not in the Bible, not anywhere in the Bible. And so you look through the Bible, and this is important for us to do, right? Because we want to know the real, the actual reasons that God gives for the commands that He gives. And and God explains this one in Leviticus chapter seventeen, verses ten and eleven. And listen to this. And any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So this is serious. (laughs) This this isn't just a lax, okay, if you eat blood, you get a smack on the wrist. No, this is serious. I, I will cut him off from his people. I will set my face against that person. Verse 11 here in Leviticus chapter 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood remember four anytime we see the word for at the beginning could also mean because because the life of the flesh is in the blood and i have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement And so this goes all the way back to god's sacrificial system right in fact, this instruction, this command for the people of God was, was present before the sacrificial system was in place. Why? Because God, having all knowledge, knows that He's going to institute the sacrificial system and that this instruction is going to represent the atoning sacrifice and the lifeblood that is represented within the atoning sacrifice. It's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. The flood, the worldwide flood, has subsided. Noah and his wife and his sons have have exited the ark and God says never again will I flood the earth by the way Noah eat any meat that you want just drain the blood first and this will be a sign of this new covenant that I will make for you now you will hear people say that before Genesis chapter 9 God does not allow people to eat meat we don't see that in the scriptures we don't we don't see meat restricted Either. We don't see it restricted or allowed at any point beside that explicitly in the scriptures. And so it would be adding speculatively to the scriptures to say that before that point people didn't eat meat or before that point people did eat meat. Either way is speculation on our part. But after the flood, God gives Noah all the meat as a sign of this new covenant, the Noah covenant he is making, right? You can have all the meat you want, just drain the blood. Here in Leviticus chapter 17, he explains why, as part of his law, that this blood is the life of the animal. And life is required as an atoning sacrifice for your life, because you have sinned and you have earned death. Sacrifice must be paid with life, with blood. And this blood, you're not to consume this blood, right? Because atonement is not found in anything of you, of yourself, from anything within you. You cannot earn righteousness. You cannot pay your way into heaven you cannot please me by anything of yourself because you are unrighteous by nature and you have transgressed my law when atonement is made it must be made from something or by something external to you atonement must be made on your behalf and so when you slaughter an animal in order to eat it you drain the blood you pour the blood on the ground and you bury this blood to represent the fact that the life blood is not not in you and you cannot produce life from within you. The lifeblood for your atonement, for your forgiveness, for your redemption is something external to you and you cannot do it. Atonement must be made on your behalf. So we begin to realize something about the law and these instructions that seem to us to just be really bizarre in the law, that all of these instructions given in the law in this way are meant to represent something about the atoning sacrifice, not just in the sacrificial system, but as a foreshadowing in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ and something that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And by the way, to those who say, no, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. And no, we, we, we don't have to keep those laws anymore, right? It's not the standard of living anymore. We look to Acts chapter 15, verse 20, where the apostles and the elders of the church have, have had their meeting, their synod. And they have decided what is proper for Gentile believers. No, Gentile believers, you don't have to be circumcised. But don't eat meat that has been strangled or has blood in it. And so this is also explicitly commanded for Gentile people who aren't even Jews people who didn't even have this law, right? Explicitly commanded for Gentile believers also in the New Testament. And, and the author of Acts was Luke, right? The Gospel writer Luke. He doesn't even qualify this statement. He just says, don't eat the lifeblood which means the purpose is the same. We don't eat the lifeblood. Why? Because it is a picture of what Christ did for us on the cross and because we want to be reminded every time we enjoy a nice steak that Jesus died for us. Everything that we do in life, Jesus died for us. It's a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and God has this really cool way of making everything about our lives point to Him. It's stinking cool is what it is. And so that's why the command was given and that's why it's explicitly stated in the New Testament as a an instruction that we still observe in our day. Now with American processing laws, we don't really have to worry too much about that, except you know, when we go hunting and of course you process your own meat or you hire somebody to process it for you and the blood's always drained out anyway. And so we just keep this in the back of our the back of our minds. The blood is drained, and it's a symbol that God gave us on purpose to remind us of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously, roll a great stone to me today. Saul is planning on building an altar. Now, whose, whose responsibility was it to build altars and to offer sacrifices? The priests. Here, Saul is about to do... Saul is not a priest. He's going to continue... He's try to atone for the people's sin, the sin of the nation but doing so in a way that is, again, completely dishonoring to God. Saul is continuing in this vicious cycle of of sin. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it. There And these are the type of sacrifices that we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 6 when we were there. Oh, so long ago. Unholy sacrifices before the Lord. And Saul built an altar. And this is how we know there's sacrifices and the people just aren't having a cookout, right? Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And whereas before we saw the Holy Spirit move Saul to genuine worship, here... The Holy Spirit is not moving him. He's trying to do religion on his own, trying to please God on his own. Verse 36, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, oh look, there's a priest present. Why is Saul making atonement when there's a priest present? So the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Let us draw near to God here. Do you see what is, what is happening in these, this vicious cycle? And how this is like the perfect picture. It's nothing new. People having a genuine religious experience, claiming to know Christ really and intently, being so serious about church and the whole church thing and about religion, and then, and then just falling away and somehow growing in sin in this vicious cycle of sins, what we call apostasy, right? It's a formal term, apostasy. It's not new. We see this with Saul here in First Samuel, and the question is why? Why? Now we'll get to that question in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to take all the time and answer it now because we will get there two weeks from now. It's a it's a teaser. We ask the question and don't answer it. We leave you hanging so that you have you have to come back and see what's next. <laughs> oh, yeah. But Saul, he places these, what I do want to address is that he really places these unnecessary burdens on the people. And he, he's dragging the people down with him. These unnecessary burdens. He's making judgment calls that I think probably belong to, to God alone. And this just, it makes me think of the way in which people often will use Romans chapter 1, right? Uh, people will always go to Romans chapter 1 and use it as this, this chapter in Scripture that lists all of these different sins, and I'll mention a few of them, and we'll actually read from Romans chapter 2 if you want to go ahead and be turning there. People will use Romans chapter 1, and they'll really use it to place burdens on people and to, and to really be hateful toward people, and that's not the purpose of the Bible. That's not why God gives us the Bible, right? We saw last week that the Bible is good for sinners, is good for the unrighteous, and so the proper way to use the Bible is to declare the gospel of hope to people who are in sin. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul, in his his broad commentary on the Old Testament, that's the book of Romans, lists all of these sins, all of these things that are really wicked in God's eyes, that are just atrocious in the sight of God. And among this list, we see things like homosexuality and wickedness and greed and envy and murder. And deceit and malice and gossiping and slanders and arrogance and boastfulness and being disobedient to parents, all of these things that are that are corruption of God's law, evil in the sight of God and we see this list and and people take that and they stop there at Romans chapter one verse thirty two and they say see tell them get them Paul <laughs> tell them what they're doing wrong and they'll use this as just a point of of hatred but as creatures of the word we want to continue reading don't we into Romans chapter two where Paul writes therefore. Because, probably, God has handed them over to their evil desires. God has, God has handed them over. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who does what? Passes judgment. So, the very way in which people will often use Romans chapter 1 to point the finger to say, get them, Paul is the very thing that, that causes people to be without excuse. For in that which you judge another, in which you point fingers and say, and use the Bible in a way that is not intended to be used, in which you point a finger and you judge another, you actually condemn yourself. And, and the word condemn there, it's a, it's a term of finality. Like, this is serious. As serious as God setting His face against you. Right? For you who judge, practice the same things. They're not explicitly the same things. Someone who is not a practicing homosexual is usually not pointing at a practicing homosexual and saying, Get them, Paul. No, but this is talking about self-righteousness, right? You who point your finger at others and say, Get them. Tell them. You are just as self-righteous as they are. And because of that, you are condemned. You're not speaking from a repentant heart when you do that. You stand condemned because of your self-righteousness. And verse 2 here in Romans chapter 2, when we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So Scripture clearly identifies these things as sin, right? But maybe even self-righteousness, pointing at others, looking at their splinter rather than the log in our own eye, right, is perhaps even a worse sin. And the judgment of God rightly falls upon us. 2 verse 3 but do you suppose this O man when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself in your self-righteousness do you think that you will escape the judgment of God and Paul takes this and he turns it upon judgmental condemning people people who would point the finger who wouldn't read on to chapter 2 I'm glad we kept reading Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? How does God lead people to repentance? By pointing the finger or by His kindness? Verse 4 says, according to His kindness, leads us to repentance. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness. You're stubborn. You who point the finger because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That's not good. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of, of God. And so those who use Scripture to condemn others, these things are really sins. We're not going to deny that, right? But to take the Bible and use it to point the finger at others and to say, oh, you sinner, oh, you who stand condemned, is to actually store up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. It's actually to earn wrath for ourselves, condemnation for ourselves. and We ought to seriously think about this, right? To point the finger and say, get them, Paul using Scripture in a way that it is not meant to be used is quite literally to stand condemned before God. To be an object of wrath. When we do that, we prove that we don't have a relationship with Jesus. We are not being saved we are not Christians, but it's those who claim to be Christians that use scripture in the way that it is not even meant to be used, right? We prove by using it that way and pointing the finger that we 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 have no idea who Jesus is. We know not the grace of God. And a person who knows the grace of God can't help but but practice grace. And as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we become people who don't do this. It becomes Part of who we are, in the depths of our being, in our in our hearts and our bones, that I no longer condemn others. I recognize sin, but I no longer condemn anyone, because I do not stand condemned on the basis of my sin. How can I condemn anyone else on the basis of his or her sin? Yet we see Saul making these very judgment calls, right? And he says, Oh, you who sinned, now we must offer atonement on behalf of ourselves. And atonement, (laughs) atonement is external of us, must be offered on our behalf, must be found in Christ, right? And so Saul recognizes sin and he starts doing religion in a way that just perpetuates the sin cycle, not only his own, but the sin cycle of the people of Israel. And two weeks from now, we're going to answer the question, why, why, why does this happen? If God has all providence and, and sovereignty, why are there people who claim to be Christians and then fall away from the faith and there's this endless cycle of sin that they just don't ever seem to recover from? We'll answer that two weeks from now. For now, I think, I think David said it best when he observed the life of Saul. And David wrote this in Psalm chapter 14. The fool... Has said in his heart, There is no God. I notice that's not a proclamation with the mouth. The fool has said in his what? In his heart. He has lived like there is no God. Even if he professes with his mouth that yes, there is a God, and I'm trying to be religious, the fool says in his heart that there is no God, he lives like there is no God, lives like he must make atonement for himself, must represent himself. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. I think Dave is probably also referring to himself here. There is no one who does good. By our nature, we are unable to do good things really things that are honoring to God. It's just not part of our nature, not part of the decisions that we make. We are unable, we are trapped, even when we try and do good and religious things. And we see this with Saul, right? Even when we try and do good and religious things and have a spiritual experience and lead a good life... There's something about us just we are unable no matter how hard we try this thing. Verse 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after, are there any people who really seek after God? And verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one. No one who does good. Not Even one. The fact of the matter is, in and of ourselves, our own nature, and David recognized this, Jonathan, Saul's son, recognized this. We cannot please God. We cannot do anything good according to God's standard, even if we try. It is why there will be many who say to Christ on that day, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The fact of the matter is we must be known by the Savior. He must know us relationally. We must be known by the Savior. We, we must be conformed to the image of Christ. And it starts with our own atonement, right? Which is something external from us. It is not of us, does not come from within us. An atonement must be offered on our behalf and it is offered in Christ Jesus. And we cannot seek after God. God must seek after us, choose us, and save us. That's the whole pointing of the text, right? That is the basic doctrine that separates a biblical worldview from every other worldview present in our day. So we make this our prayer, and please pray with me here, and then after I pray, Katie will come up and talk about the persecuted church. Lord, we ask that You give us eyes to see. Lord, we ask that You give those in our community eyes to see. We ask that You give our sister churches in our area eyes to see. We know, Lord, that we must be born again to even see the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, we ask that You Give us the spiritual birth. Enable us to believe in Jesus Christ in a genuine and sincere way. Those in our community who don't know You, who use the Bible in a way that is not meant to be used. Lord, we ask for for new spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. For them, that they would become new creatures that the old would pass away that we would all be conformed together to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ and we thank you for all of those here and in our community and in our sister churches who are born again according to the way you have described what it means to be, to be born again Lord, we commit ourselves to you be with us be with us, Lord, as we sing and as we pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. Lord, we love you. Not because it's something in and of us, but because you first loved us. We love you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.